This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In his new book, Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior, Wharton marketing professor Jonah Berger takes us inside the conscious and unconscious ways that social influences shape our decisions. Jonah, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Now, what was the, um, what was the inspiration for focusing on social influence as the topic of your next book? You know, there's a funny story that I, I mentioned briefly in the book, but uh, a number of years ago, my dad was buying a new car. Uh, and he's in, he lives in D.C. Uh, he's a lawyer there. Um, and he bought a BMW. Uh, and then he was complaining that all DC lawyers buy BMWs. I said, well, Dad, you bought BMW also. He said, oh, but mine's a blue one. Everyone else drives a gray one. Um, and I think what's really funny about that is social influence happens in the world, right? We see everybody else doing the same thing. Oh, look at all those DC lawyers. They all drive the same car. But when it comes to our own behavior, sometimes we feel like our own behavior is somehow privileged or, or different. I'm a rugged individualist. I'm independent. No one else has any effect on, on what I do. And actually, we're kind of wrong. Um, and so what I thought would be interesting to talk about in this book is all the science about how others shape our behavior, often without us knowing it, and what we can do about it and how we can use it to live happier and healthier lives. And now your previous book, Contagious, focused on why things go viral. And I wondered, yeah. do you feel like there's an interplay between social influence and virality? I could kind of see why, how there would be. Oh, certainly. I mean, they're both related to how people shape other people's behavior or decisions. Um, the first book, Contagious, was more about how do we influence others, right? If, if I'm a business owner or I have an idea I want to spread within my organization, Contagious was about, well, we know word of mouth matters. How do I get people to talk about and share my stuff? Invisible influence is a little bit actually almost the converse or the opposite. It's, well, how are other people affecting my behavior? Sure, we can use that to influence others, but we can also use it to make ourselves better off, to help us make better decisions or be healthier when we're having trouble doing that. Now, I thought it was interesting in the book that, I mean, the book's really not about how to go above the influence, because you kind of make the point that resistance is a bit futile when it comes to social influence, is that whether we know it or not, it's happening. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, the most interesting part. You know, we see it all the time. Uh, if you ask people to social influence this, oh, of course, you know, my neighbor bought this thing because someone else bought it. Um, you know, my wife did this thing because someone else was doing it. But we don't, we don't necessarily see it in ourselves. And I think that idea of resistance is futile is important. I think what we have to be careful of is influence isn't always a bad thing. Imagine if we couldn't use others as a source of information. If every time we wanted to figure out where to go out to dinner or what movie to watch. We had to sample it ourselves. It'd be exhausting. We'd have to read all the you know, information and look at all the options and sample a little bit here and there. Others are a really helpful cue. Others often help us make better decisions, but not always. Uh, and so as Invisible Influence talks about, you know, when do others help us make better decisions? When do they make worse decisions? When do others motivate us? When do they demotivate us? And how can we use this to be better off? And now that brings me to my, actually my next question. Okay. So if we, if we know that social influence is going to play a role, and I think even before I like the book, we know it plays a little bit, but your book really shows how much of a role it really does play. If we know this, how can we harness that and use it to help us make better decisions? Yeah, so uh, great example. So uh, one uh, one thing I talk a little about is motivation. Um, others often affect whether we uh, give up, whether we try harder. How can we use that to be better off? One thing I felt in my, my own life, uh, you know, you want to exercise, you want to be healthier. How can you use others to help you do that? And simple tricks like working out with other people, um, really having someone else to compare yourself to. There's lots of research on something called social facilitation, merely by 
biking with someone else, for example, makes you bike faster. Running with someone else makes you run faster. Swimming with someone else makes you swim faster. Others can help us do things that we might not do otherwise. And so we can set up situations where we actually encourage ourselves to be healthier, encourage ourselves to make better choices by shaping our environment through others. Now, the book really plays into sort of this dichotomy of it either motivates us or demotivates us. Social influence makes us want to do something similar or it makes us want to do something different. What is, I mean, what are the factors that go into determining like how, whether social influence, for example, want us, will want, make us want to buy the same car as our neighbor versus buy a different one yeah. or make us want to work harder versus give up? Yeah. So that's, I have to give you a long answer for all of it. But I think some simple things are, you know, first, uh, others often provide information. So when we're uncertain about what to do, we often look to others and that leads us often to do the same thing. Um, yet at the same time, we want to see ourselves as different. Particularly in American culture, we like to see ourselves as special snowflakes. No one else is exactly like my dad buying, you know, the blue BMW yes. rather than the gray one. Um, and so maybe we pick the same car because we know it's a good car because others have bought it, but we pick a different color because colors allow us to feel different. So we're similar and different at the same time. We're, we're optimally distinct. Or, or in terms of motivation, for example, you know, others can motivate us except when they're too much better than we are. Right? If we compare ourselves to someone who's much better, much faster than we are, sometimes it causes us to give up. Um, you know, we say, well, there's no way I'm going to reach that standard or that score, or that level of performance. And so they're so much better than, than I am that I'm, I'm not going to try anymore. And so it's really about understanding the subtle differences of social comparisons um, and understanding the situations people are in that that helps us figure out which way it goes. Now, you have a couple really interesting sort of examples like this in this book. So, so one of the, my favorite one, I have to say, was about why does it make it, why does social influence make it harder for us to parallel park, but easier to tie our shoes? And the reason is I hate it when people watch me parallel park. I'm horrible <laughs> at it. If someone's watching, I'm a master if no one is. Yeah. So actually, can I tell you a story? And sure. I started to get there. So there's this wonderful old study uh, on motivation. Uh, and so this researcher was interested in just the question you were interested in. He looked at a bunch of research and said, well, sometimes others seem to be motivating, lead us to work harder, do better. Sometimes they lead us to get demotivated, to do worse. Why is that? Um, you know, what are situations that lead to one versus the other? And so he wanted to figure out a way to test that. So he designed this amazing experiment with um, running, actually, looking at how uh, running was affected by other, other individuals watching you run. But he didn't do it with people. He did it with cockroaches. So we built this like cockroach stadium where these little cockroaches would run cockroach races, you know, run from one stadium side to the other. Um, but then he could manipulate whether other cockroaches watching them. And by the way, this is sort of ridiculous thing about cockroaches watching other cockroaches. But he was interested in, well, how does the mere presence of others affect what we do? Uh, and he had them run one of two mazes, one that was either straight ahead, you're just really easy, or one where you had to run straight and then make a left turn, really difficult, more sort of requirement out, do I go right, do I go left, what do I do? And what he found is when the task was easy, when it was well-learned, running straight, something cockroaches know how to do well, having others around helped them do better. They ran faster with others than they, than they did by themselves. But when it was a difficult task, when they had to sort of figure out, do I go left or do I go right, then it was more complicated. And then the mere presence of others actually made them do worse. And so that's exactly, as you mentioned, sort of parallel parking versus other aspects. If we know how to do things well, if they're easy things, we've already done a bunch, uh, then having others around makes us do them better. Uh, you know, if you're great at shooting pool, for example, shooting pool with someone else will actually make you better at shooting pool than, than by yourself. But if you're not so good at shooting pool, if, if it's something that you're not used to doing, if it's difficult for you, then having others around can make you do worse. And so parallel parking, for example, most of us, maybe some of us are good at parallel parking, but most of us tend to be a little bit nervous to begin with. We're not excellent parallel parkers. Merely having someone else in the car can make it more difficult for us, it makes us more nervous, more anxious. And while that anxiety can help us do better when it's easy for us to do those tasks, they can lead us to do worse when it's a difficult or complicated task. 
And now you also, to get back to car buying yeah. a little bit, you talk a little bit about in the book how, in fact, people who are more well-off, they might be more likely to try to buy a different car than their neighbors, whereas those of us that are maybe more in the middle class, lower class, that we yeah. act, it might actually, that social influence might actually cause us to buy the same car. Yeah. So we tend to think in American culture that it's the uniqueness is the right answer. People who are unique and different are good, and people who are conformists are bad. It's like being a conformist is a negative thing. But it's not a really a, a right or a wrong answer. It's more of a cultural value. Think about East Asian cultural context, for example, where fitting in, being a good member of the group is, is the right answer. You know, it's not the squeaky reel gets the grease. It's the nail that stands out gets, gets hammered down. Uh, even true in American cultural context. In, in working class context, people like being part of a group. People like being f- connected to others that are like them. Why would it be bad if you had the same car as your neighbor? It shows that you like the same things, that you have a lot in common. Whereas in other parts of American culture, we say, well, oh, you know, standing out is the right thing to do. Why would I want the same thing as everyone else? I want to show that I'm different. And so what's interesting is uniqueness isn't right answer or wrong answer. It's just a way of behaving based on our social environment. Now, I was curious about, now, as the internet has become part of our daily lives all the time, as social media has become more of our daily lives, I feel like it's easier and easier to know what your friends are doing. It's easier for companies to know what even what your friends are doing. How does that play into social influence and maybe the degree to which social influence is playing a role in our decisions? Yeah. What's so interesting about the internet, it's made information spread faster. It's easier, as you nicely said, to see what others are doing. But that has two kind of differing effects. First, it makes it easier to copy others, right? So uh, we hear a new band. uh, Our friends are listening. We're going to listen to it. It makes things catch on much faster than they would have before, which seems great. If you're that band, it seems fantastic. I've caught on. But it also makes it easier for people to switch to something else or avoid something because too many people are doing it. As I talk about in the book, you know, we don't just want to be similar. We also want to be different. And so sometimes when too many people like a particular band, we say, well, I don't like it anymore. I like their old stuff before they became became mainstream. And so what it's really done is it's led to faster cycles of, of fads and fashion. Things catch on more quickly, but they also die out just as quickly. And so one thing I talk a lot about for companies and organizations is, well, how do we manage this, right? As a, as a brand, for example, I want to catch the upswing. I want my product to be everyone to be buying it, but how do we avoid the downswing when people say, well, it's too popular, I don't want it anymore, or if those people are doing it, maybe I don't want it. And so how can we capture the good aspects of that and and avoid the bad? Now, is it really, though, I mean, it seems like it would be so fleeting for companies to catch the upswing. Like, it seems by the time you know there is an upswing, it's already on the downswing. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, uh, what what also allowed and, and possible now is there's so much rich behavioral data that we can get more of a sense of who's buying something, what else they've bought, and, and what they're like. And so, you know, Amazon, for example, has a good sense of what type of books we like and can say, well, these type of people used to be buying this, now a different type of, of folks are buying it. And so I agree with you. It's not, it's not perfect data, but uh, it's certainly better than it's been before. Now, did you, while you were writing this book or researching this book, did you catch yourself at all in terms of, like, were you surprised to realize how social influence played into your decisions? Yeah. I am the worst person to uh, shop with or make decisions with. I have a huge problem making decisions, in part of it because I'm always thinking, well, what are other people doing, right? And I'm saying, well, if they're doing it, it's the reason I'm doing it because other people are doing it, or do I really like it uh, myself? And What's interesting is there's no answer to that question. Um, Others often affect us without our our realizing it. But by being aware of it, sometimes hopefully we can make better decisions than than we would have otherwise. Now, as you were saying, like we have this vision, I mean, particularly I think in in American culture of this, you know, the rugged individualist. I mean, we place a very high value on nonconformists. I mean, nonconformists are the best. They're, you know, pathbreakers. They're, you know, they're above the influence. But what does this book say about like, I mean, does a nonconformist really exist? <laughs> and if it does, I mean, this book sort of speaks to, like, 
how hard it must be to really be a nonconformist. Yeah. So there's um, uh, there's a great cartoon, South Park, uh, you're probably aware of it, uh, that has a show uh, where um, one of the characters says to another, oh, you know, you can't be a nonconformist uh, if you don't drink coffee. Uh, and what I think is so true about that is even nonconformists are conforming. It's very rare that you find someone that's not influenced by, by anyone else. Even avoiding what others are doing, you're still being influenced. You're just saying, well, I don't want to be like them. You know, uh, goths, for example, you know, you look at kids that dress in all black, well, they're all actually pretty similar to one another. And we like to see ourselves as different. We like to think, oh, you know, the unique person, the nonconformist, they win out, they lead companies. Really, those people conform just as much as everybody else. It's just they don't seem like they're conforming because they may not be doing what the mainstream is doing, but they tend to still do what, what other people like them do. Great. Jonah, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.